0: Thank you, India. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. As India said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to see you all here despite the inclement weather. It seems that uh, we got a little bit of snow this this week, just a just a touch. Uh, and so, snow, depending on who you are, can be kind of cr- kind of a crisis point. You know, we all have different thresholds for that. But the amount of snow and the the number of days that it snowed could could end up being kind of a crisis, schools canceled, you know, you got to get out in it. But I, I believe that crises present opportunities, right? And so whenever we are faced with things that inconvenience us, we are also aware that it also inconveniences other people. And if we have our hearts tuned to the frequency of heaven, which we should, we see these inconveniences as opportunities to serve. We see these inconveniences as opportunities for the church to rise up and be the church, for the church to rise up and plug a hole, to meet a need. And so that's exactly what uh, we we had an opportunity to do this week. For for those of you who've been hanging around for a while, you know, for, for a number of years, we've had a program that we simply call Snow Shoveling for Seniors. And basically what happens is we partner with the Village of Homewood, to uh, help them help the seniors in our community, those that cannot uh, uh, shovel their own snow, either due to illness or just old age, uh, and particularly those who also can't afford to have somebody come out and shovel it. Well, over the years, you know, when it snows a lot, we, we, you know, in terms of how many volunteers we have, we usually get up to the edge of what we can handle. And so we've not put this on our website and we try to keep it fairly low key uh, but that didn't work this week because the village sent out an email <laughs> to the entire village saying, hey, this is what's happening. Lots of snow coming. Be safe. And at the bottom was like, if you need help with your snow and you're a senior, contact. I think they even put my cell phone number on there. I get calls on my cell phone. And so we have just received an avalanche of calls this week. Again, if our hearts are tuned to the frequency of heaven, we respond to it and say, hey, this is an opportunity for the church to be a church because I, I don't think there's also any other churches in our community that are offering a service like this. And so I texted my brothers who have signed up and these guys were just absolutely ready to, uh, to, to, to jump on this. And I've served as dispatcher and even go out and shovel some, some driveways. But the responses that we've gotten from the community, we've had people call that didn't need help. They were just wanting to call us and let us know how awesome this is, Right? But I've gotten the chance to, when I go to these houses or when I receive the calls or when people call me after we've serviced them, I have just been on the receiving end of some of the most blessed remarks that I've ever experienced or heard in my whole career as a pastor. If, there's a particular way that a senior citizen looks at a young person when they're really pleased with them, Right? Some of you know this look. It's like they just kind of shake their head. Maybe their lips are pursed. And what that look says is, your mother raised you right. <laughs> right? That's what that look means. At least that's how I interpret it. And so I've gotten those looks. I've felt that in the tone of voice. But, but as I tweak that, my interpretation of that, what I hear them really expressing pride in or pleasure in is that the church has actually uh, begin to walk the talk. In fact, one lady called us back after having her driveway shoveled by one of our volunteers, and she says, "She said, I, and I quote, I love to see a good sermon rather than hear one. And she said, I'm going to be coming to your church. Well, she probably didn't come today, right? <laughs> because she's probably snowed in again. Uh, but I, I got this, got to talk to a, a, one of our seniors. Her name was Rosemary Browning. And she, the words that she shared with me, she even sent me an email, which I'm going to read. She said, Pastor Gino, my heavenly father always looks out for me. I'm a senior citizen, and snow always makes me very anxious. I have fallen on the ice twice right in front of my house. So when looking for help on the internet, I came across your church, church's blessing. I was overwhelmed with the thrill of hope. The thrill of hope. And I called this morning, spoke with you. And you were so warm and gracious. It touched my heart. I can't thank you and your congregation enough for this much-needed service. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. And these are just a couple of the stories. I know David went out and all these sorts of things. But this, this same lady, Rosemary Browning, she called me again. Now, this would be the third time that I've spoken to her. She called me again. She said, I just wanted you to know, I was actually expecting to get your voicemail, but I wanted you to know that a guy from your church, Eli, came out and shoveled my snow, and he took his time. He did a meticulous job, but she said, that's not what blessed me. She said, Eli didn't know that I was looking out the window as he, as he worked, and once he finished my driveway, he looked across the street, and he noticed my elderly neighbor struggling to shovel his snow. And without hesitation, Eli went across the street and offered to help my neighbor. She said, it moved me to tears that this man would not only come out and do what he was assigned to do, but that he would have the eye to see someone else who needed help as well. Now, let me just tell you, you know, you, you, those of you who are parents, you have those proud, you know, parent moments, right? I just, as I, as I just received these calls and just was able to soak in just this blessing, I was just, just a proud pastor that we would be the type of church who would serve our community in this way. And I think this gets at the, one of the realities of who I think we're called to be as a Christian church, a Christian church that really sees and responds to the needs and the people around us. And so I think this fits neatly into a series that I started last week, a series that I'm simply calling This Is Us. As I said last week, uh, This Is Us, as you might be familiar with the popular NBC dramedy, it's a comedy and a drama mixed. Uh, I just been uh, and, and really impressed with this show, and given the fact that we had snow days this week and kids were homesick, I got an opportunity to do some in, intensive sermon preparation this week, which basically means I've been binge watching. This is <laughs> <laughs> it's for the sermon, okay? Binge watching this show, and it's just such a really it's such a really great show. I like this show because it's honest. You know, sometimes you watch shows, particularly, you know, network television shows, and it's just so syrupy. It doesn't at all ring true. You, You can't really relate to much of it because it's not where real people live. But this show really talks about the ups and the downs, and it really just presents this family, the Pearsons, like in this really raw and honest form. And in the spirit of the, the the honest nature of this show, I feel like we are to constantly be presenting ourselves to God. In this, Lord, this is us. This is who we are. Good, bad, ugly, flaws, beauty, corns. You know, whatever. You know, wh- whoever we are. Like this, this is just who we are. But we don't present ourselves that this is who we are. Don't mess with us. This is just who we are. We're unfixable. But we submit ourselves. This is us, Lord. Would you tweak what needs to be tweaked? Would you change to transform what needs to be transformed? So it's not this passive, hey, just leave me alone. It's this, Lord, here we are, bare before you, standing before, as I said last week, the mirror of God's Word. And in a mirror, you see a reflection. Sometimes you see a good reflection. Sometimes you see a horrific-like picture that you need to change all sorts of stuff. But we stand before the mirror of God's Word and say, God, this is us. We behold his magnificent standard, a standard that doesn't condemn us, but does call us higher, and does call us to tweak and change what needs to be tweaked and changed. Father, this is us. And so as we take this view or take this approach in a corporate sense as a church, I told you last week that I'm always asking as a pastor two very important questions. The first question is, who are we? Like assess us. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't, 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 don't add any syrup. Just who are we? honestly, who are we? And the second important question is, who are we supposed to be? Lord, what is your plan for us? What are we supposed to be? Who are we supposed to be? And so as we sort of engage this more than we can imagine campaign, which includes purchasing this building and remodeling it, we want to take very deliberate steps toward Uh, March 25th, which is our Pledge Sunday, where each and every family will have an opportunity to pledge, make a financial pledge as to what they want to offer toward uh, making this dream a reality. And then that pours into uh, uh, April 1st, which is Easter Sunday, which is the first official day of giving. We want to take deliberate steps. And we just don't want to talk about how much money we're going to give and just rally people toward giving. We want to take deliberate steps so that we can wrap an attractive building around an attractive church. Because it's more than just a building. This is just the coat that we put on. This is just a ministry tool for us to be who we are called to be, right? So we don't just want a nice-looking building. We don't just want a healthy-looking building. We want a healthy church. A healthy-looking church, right? And so I long to be, we should long to be a church that makes an impact, a church that come crashing into this community, a church that this city would miss if we had to move or if we closed. I have to ask myself this over and over and over again. If this church ceased to exist, if we had to close our doors for whatever reason, or if we had a great opportunity across town and we had to move someplace else, would the city miss us? Would they even know that we're gone? I think they would. <laughs> right? Yeah. But I think that we ought to continue to press into toward being a church that makes an impact. And if we're going to do that, we have to be honest about who we are. And we have to be deliberate about going where we're going. I started this series last week by defining us as the sick and the healers. Basically, that this must be a healing place where both the sick and the healers coexist and we nurse each other toward health in a picture of what God has for us. I want to continue this series this morning by talking about the importance of being good neighbors. Uh, the importance of being good neighbors. And depending on who you're talking to and the context of the conversation, this word neighbor can mean something different. in a a classic, just really raw sense, neighbor just kind of, it's a word that deals with proximity, like closeness, like this person is my neighbor because they live to the right of me, or this person is my neighbor because they live to the left of me, or this is my neighbor across the street or my neighbor behind me, right? Like a proximity type of thing. Uh, but if you get deeper into a conversation you want to assign more meaning to that word, it, it, it deals with a sense of friendliness, right? A fondness, this communal caring that is shared between one or more people. You put those two things together and that's like communal caring with the people who are the closest to you, particularly where you live. But I think this word neighbor, like Jesus like really grabs a hold of that word and assigns like new meaning to it. And that's the meaning that I want to talk about today when I'm talking about neighbor. I'm just not talking about the people who happen to be close to you, although proximity is important when it comes to neighborliness, right? Uh, But I'm talking about this fond, caring, communal caring that exists within the kingdom of God. And just like last week, we talked about wherever we go should be a healing place full of healing moments I believe that we are also carriers of kingdom neighborliness such that wherever we go becomes a kingdom neighborhood. Wherever we go becomes opportunities to have these kingdom-like neighborly moments where like Jesus shows up and like he's made more famous because people get to interact with us. That's what I'm talking about today. I'm simply calling this message this morning, a community of good neighbors. This is us a community of good neighbors. At least this is who we should be. This is who we should be like reaching for. We want to be a community of good neighbors. I want to look at a familiar passage of scripture to many of us. Luke chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 25. Luke chapter 10. Feel free to turn that with me in your Bibles. Also, we'll be projecting the words on the screens. Feel free also to, um, to follow along in your devices. I won't be at all offended if you're using your electronic devices. Luke chapter 10, while you find that, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much uh, that we get to come and worship you even under the circumstances, even under the weather. Thank you for all the people who pressed out. I thank you even for folks who are listening to us uh, through our podcast. Father, I pray that the word would be as potent for them as those sitting here today. Father, we want to be more like you. We want to live up to your standard for us. We want to be what you had in mind for us when you, you know, when you ordained this church. And so, Father, may we lean into your truth today, where we set aside everything that gets defensive, Uh, where we set aside things that, that, anything that might cause us to bristle at the truth. Father, would you speak clearly to us today and help us to be a community of neighbors as you would be pleased with the power in these words this morning. Uh, Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 10, I'm going to start at verse 25. reads as follows. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, was this the law of Moses saying, how do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed uh, to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. And if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Yes, Now you, I'll insert that for emphasis, you go and do the same. I can't express enough how important this passage is. They they all are. Every uh, scripture that is contained within the canon of scriptures is important. I don't mean to uh, cast any shade on any other passages, but this particular passage is really up there as it relates to importance, in terms of importance because when we talk about and we talk about it often here, what are we on this earth to do? We are here to do what? To love God and to love people, right? And so one of the real outworkings of our love for God is how we love people, right? In fact, Jesus tells his guys, he says, listen, people are going to know that you're with me, not by how loudly and how beautifully you sing, Not by, you know, how many scriptures you read or just how nice, you know, how many bumper stickers, Christian bumper stickers you have in a car. People are going to know that you love and serve me how? Uh, How you treat one another. How you love other people. And so this is one of those passages that really frames for us what Christian love looks like. Some would argue that it's an extreme example of what Christian love looks like, and I think that Jesus in his teachings and his storytellings, he often like highlights the extremes as if to say anything short of this also applies, right? And so this is a really really important Uh, text. It's a familiar text, and often uh, I give a warning when I'm dealing with a familiar text. Don't think that you know all there is to know because you've read this story dozens of times, because you've heard dozens of sermons on it. There's always something new and fresh in the living word, right? And so this is a familiar passage. I also want other warning. Don't fall into the trap of making this story allegorical, which basically uh, is a trap that we often fall into when we approach the scriptures. We try to assign a meaning to this. Okay, well, the Jewish man in this story represents Jesus, or the, the, the Samaritan in this story represents this. This is a story where the Jewish man represents a Jewish man. The Samaritan represents a Samaritan. The beating he took represents a beating. Like, this is a story that we should take at face value because its power and its instruction is like right there on the surface for us. And so don't try to assign some meaning that the original like authors didn't intend, okay? This is not allegory. This is a legit story. And this story opens telling us basically our main characters is an expert, and I think they're being really generous in calling him an expert, of religious law, stood up to test Jesus by asking him a question, sit up the testament and said, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you should understand something, that these guys thought they were smart, they were experts, and so they often took these occasions to test Jesus. And all, it, it's clear that they didn't really know who they were messing with, right? I can imagine, I don't want to take any liberties with the text. This is pure conjecture, but I can just imagine that the disciples are standing nearby going, dude, don't do it this is not what you want today, dude. If you're trying to trick somebody, it's like, this is like almost sport for them. They're like, watch this. Watch Jesus take care of this. Dude, watch Jesus make short work of this clown, right? Stood up to test him, but he doesn't know what he's getting into, right? But I'm glad that he took occasion to try to test the master because we wouldn't have this magnificent story. And millions and millions of acts of kindness, millions of hearts have been turned toward neighborliness because of this. And so, God is sovereign in this. But he asked Jesus this question. What should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is an honest question. This is a good question. But unfortunately, there's such poor motives behind this that it's almost like shameful that he would ask this. But this is a really good question. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses says? In other words, you're the expert. What does the law say? You must love the Lord your God, with your heart, soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and all. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, right. Do this, and this will live. Now, I'll be the first to acknowledge that these commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's like, that's kind of fuzzy. It's a really big sort of broad thing. And this young man would have done himself a favor to leave well enough alone. Walk away with a fuzzy, you know, picture of what you're supposed to do leave it alone and you can claim ignorance but this guy is kind of snotty right he's, he's an expert don't forget that and he didn't take the opportunity to leave well enough alone and so he asked one final question which is like this is going to be his undoing he says by the way wh- who is my neighbor and I imagine disciples getting go oh, dude <laughs> you should have quit while you were here right And so Jesus launches into this story, the story of the Good Samaritan. And, uh, you know, Jesus is really about to pack this guy's lunch for him. Because you can ignore what Jesus is about to say, but you can't unhear it. You can disregard it. But you can't unhear what the master is about to say. And as Jesus launches into this story, I think three important things stand out as we work hard to be great neighbors in a a real kingdom sense. I want to identify some distinguishing marks of good neighbors and neighborliness, particularly in a kingdom sense, because I believe this is who God has called us to be. The first thing I see is that neighbors respond to need. Neighbors respond to need. When you go beyond the just basic definition of like proximity, we find that neighbors not only respond to need, but real neighbors are actually defined by need. Defined by need. And so Jesus launches into this story, and in the first few lines of this story, he frames the issue, he frames the problem, he frames the conflict, he frames the need. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now you understand something. Not like the listeners of this story would understand that this road from Jerusalem to Jericho is like a dangerous road. That wouldn't be news to them, right? And the hearers of the story wouldn't be surprised that somebody else had fallen victim to the criminals that lay in wait to exploit and take advantage of the people that pass there. This is a Jewish man who was attacked, beaten, stripped, humiliated, and left for dead. To his attackers, he was a victim, right? But to the neighborly man that's walking past, he's a candidate for genuine love and neighborliness, right? So Jesus' point about kingdom neighborless, as we see it here, centers around need and little else, It centers around need. And there are details about this man's ethnicity. There are details about his gender. There are details even about the road he was traveling. But the neighborliness part of this centers around his need. What's wrong? What he needs help with. It's really the same way in the natural. When we're talking about neighborliness, we're not just talking about proximity. We're talking about will the people around you help you? It could be something as small as a cup of sugar, right? It could be a babysitting. It could be picking up the mail when you're on vacation, right? But your real neighbors are the people who are gonna help you out when you need help. Your real neighbors are gonna people who are gonna respond to the needs, great or small. My mother used to say to us, everybody ain't your friend. Right? And I used to say, oh grumpy parents that's what they do right but now my kids come home and everybody's their friend it's annoying because <laughs> when you get my age you know that everybody's not your friend you have acquaintances you have schoolmates right you have coworkers, you have people who are friendly but you like begin to settle into a reality when you become older, that everybody's not your friend, and it's almost dangerous to count people as friends who aren't, right? And so I think that there are defining moments relationally that really let you know who your real friends are. Those defining moments usually are accompanied by need. You want to know who your friends are, get in trouble. I don't know who your friends are. Get sick. And stay sick. You want to know who your friends are, get broke and stay broke. You want to know who your real friends are, get in trouble, get sick, and be broke. You'll learn real fast who your real friends are. In the same way, I think this whole kingdom neighborliness issue, as Jesus is trying to flesh out here, can be really helped like by understanding that neighbors respond to need. Only, you know, Jesus gives this extreme example, but he asked at the end of the story, who was a neighbor? And the only person who qualifies was the person who did what? Who responded to this person's need. So, neighbors respond to need. The second thing I see here is that neighbors take risk. Neighbors take risks. Now, it's no coincidence that that word keeps popping up. I think we've had a point that involved risk. And like the last four or five sermons and many before it, because we believe that our faith, if we're going to like be real people of faith, it involves great risks. We say often that Christians, we spell, at least in the vineyard, we spell faith, R-I-S-K. Neighbors take risk. People of faith engage risk. Verse 31 says, by chance, you see, this man's been beaten by chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. This is the priest. Verse 32 says the temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed to the other side. This is another person, another employee of the church, right? Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. He felt compassion for him. And we'll get to compassion in a minute. But I just want to just identify that these, that these sort of ethnic markers or these ethnic identifiers are really significant. We learned last week, uh, as Jesus related to the Samaritan woman, that, you know, Samaritans and Jews were at odds with one another. To say they didn't like each other would be, to put it mildly, they hated each other, right? They, they hated each other. And so, for the Samaritan person to be the one who takes the risk and the, the one who offers help in response to the need is really, really significant in this story. It's clear to us as we unpack this that the priest saw the man lying there. Scriptures tell they saw him and walked to the other side of the room. The Levite or the temple assistant, they saw him and walked to the other side of the room. But this despised Samaritan man actually saw him, didn't just see his limp lifeless body there, but he saw him, he saw him a person, like a real person, made in God's image and likeness of much worth, of he really like, he really saw him. He saw him and he decided to take a risk. The Samaritan man, our unlikely hero, had to press past some really good reasons to not stop. Notice I didn't say excuses. Right? Because excuses, I don't even want to talk about excuses. You know, if you got an excuse, you know You want to know how you got an excuse? If somebody deals with the excuse, like another excuse pops up. Hey, you want to go to the concert with, ah, oh, you know what? I got to go pick up my kids, right? Oh no, somebody just told me that they'll get your kids for you. You want to go? Oh no, you know, and some other excuse pops up. That's the excuse, right? But like, then there's like good reasons. This Samaritan man had a good reason not to stop. The best one was that this was a Jew. And also a really good one is that this road to Jericho is like infamous, infamous, and that people are routinely beat and robbed, Exhibit A, right? And that it was believed that one strategy of these robbers was to position a person who seemed to be beaten, seemed to need help while they're lying in wait. And as soon as you go over there and help, they hop out and they got another one, right? And so we can go on down the list. Good reasons, good reasons to not stop. But this hero, this Samaritan, this despised Samaritan has to press past those, press past those to take some risk, to be a good neighbor. I say it again, real faith will have you taking risks. And so I think that some of the risk involved in being a good neighbor and expressing and walking out real faith, is like you have to risk like being taken advantage of. And if you have just eliminated all the risk of taking advantage of, being taken advantage of, if you have your Christian service down to the like, like it's airtight that you won't be taken advantage of or you won't be misused or you've eliminated the possibility of you looking like a sucker, if you've done that, then I don't, think you've, I don't think you've really understood what it means to take a risk. I see this all the time as people make the case for not giving needy people stuff. Like, I don't know what they're going to do with it. I don't know how he's going to spend that. He may go and get some drugs with it. What I'm fond of saying is if you've got to know, if you got to know what they're going to do with it, if you got to be sure what they're going to do with it. If you got to be sure that you're not going to be taken for a ride, if you got to be absolutely sure that you're not going to come out on the sucker's end of this, then you'll never be generous. At least not in the way that real neighbors are. And so what I see is that this person takes great risks, the risk of being taken advantage of. He makes himself vulnerable. He puts himself in a position to be exploited. He presses through those. And my question to you in the spirit of trying to, you know, figure out where we are, assess where we are, is how good are you at pressing past the reasons not to help somebody? How often are you using your kids as an excuse, your own personal safety as an excuse, your circumstance, your little resource. How often, how easy is it for you to come up with good reasons, like reasons that no reasonable person would argue with? Let yourself out of this command to be a good neighbor. And some of us have extracted all of the risk out of being a Christian, and we are not making the slightest of impact on the world we live in. I'll say that again. Some of us have managed to extract all of the risk out of being a Christian. And in doing so, we have failed to be the neighbors that God has called us to be. We'll find ourselves being in places for years and not making any impact. We'll find ourselves coming to church for years hearing message after message, sermon after sermon, and making no impact. We will find ourselves confronted over and over with needs in our family, needs at work, needs on our way to work and in the marketplace, and we won't even see them because we've overvalued comfort, we've overvalued safety, and we are not even in a position to see, like really see those who are lying in the gutters of life, that God has providentially caused us to pass that way. We won't even see him. And if we can't see them as this priest and this temple assistant saw him but didn't really see him, we certainly won't respond and we certainly want, won't take risk. What's striking to me is the example that the priest and the Levite set for the Samaritan man. If I was on the fence about whether or not I should help. Once I watched my pastor walk past, <laughs> and once I my, watched my worship leader walk past, if I had any doubt, I might go, well, these are men of God, full of His Spirit. Surely they divine something that I, I must follow their lead. Or suddenly, if I'm feeling guilty at all about this, like uh, I've been let off the hook because my pastor just passed... And the worship leader just passed. And so I was drawn It's like convicted uh, of the, the weight of the influence that we hold in, in spaces like this, in this community. In spaces of you know the, the influence that we hold, the example that we hold of people who see us as Christians and they just want to see. They just want to see. They've, they've heard us post, they've seen us post scriptures, they've heard heard us be judgmental. They've, they've seen us invite them to And when need and opportunities arise, they're just watching. They're just watching to see what the preacher is going to do when real need is chewed, swallowed, and digested right in front of them. They want to see what the worship leader is going to do when real need, a real opportunity to walk the talk, is pressed in front of them. What will we do? What will we do? I feel like what the Lord wants us to do, what the Lord wants us to do is to take risks. And even as I say that, I know that some of you are thinking of opportunities just this week. Opportunities just this week that you were too busy, too uninterruptible to respond in the way that now you know the spirit was leaning. Now you know this was like a divine appointment, Right? But that whole risk thing and the whole comfort thing and the whole safety thing just really—it wrestled you out of being obedient. It wrestled you out of an opportunity to really make a really good deposit in the realm of Christian witness. This whole risk thing. So real neighbors respond to need. Real neighbors take risk. And the third thing is that real neighbors are moved. With compassion. Moved with compassion. It must be said and reset and reset that this is like where Jesus lived, right? You look at the stories and the accounts of Jesus' life, nearly every, every healing, every miracle that he did, it, it's often accompanied, like, and Jesus moved with compassion, healed the woman. Jesus moved with compassion, did X, and moved with compassion. This is, this is where the Savior lived, right? And if we're disciples of him, if we're to be be followers of him, if we're supposed to extend this kingdom that he began here on earth, then we have to live here too. We have to live in a compassionate space. You want to be a kingdom man? You want to be God's inside man wherever you are, in your house and at your job and in the marketplace? You want to be a kingdom woman at your house and at your job and in the marketplace? Like, compassion, like, is, is a part of the package deal here, Right? This is a part of it. And compassion is simply sympathetic pity and concern for the suffering and misfortunes of others. Sympathetic pity and concern for the suffering and misfortune of others. Compassion produces an empathetic response that imagines yourself in that person's shoes. Like if you sit like, if you let compassion do its work, it's not just like, oh, that must, be really, that must be really tough for them. That must be really hard for them. Oh, I think real kingdom compassion, like, it sits in that for a minute. And then sitting in that, you can't help but wonder what you would want somebody to do were you on the other side of this thing. You can't help but imagine, like, how terrible it would be to be lying on the side of the road, like, nearly dead, Naked, abandoned, afraid—you know, all your resource gone. You, you can't imagine, but go, man. If I were laying there, I would want somebody to do thus and so. This is like the outwork. This is what compassion does. It moves you. It moves you. I think far too often our, uh, what we what we say when we reference compassion is not compassion at all because compassion moves you. Compassion moves you toward the target. It moves you toward the victim, right? It moves you toward the person who needs help. And if you're not being moved, it's not compassion. If you're not being drawn out of the cozy, comfortable place, it's not, it's not compassion because compassion should move us. Going over to him... Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own, donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. You notice all the verbs, right? I counted six, seven verbs in just a couple of verses. Going over to him soothed his wounds, bandaged his wounds, put the man on his donkey, took him, took care of him, right? That's a lot of action in these few verses. And these few verses follow the verse that says, seeing him, the man had compassion on him. And in stating that, Jesus frames exactly what that compassion moved him to do. Go over and check it out. Get close up on it. Risk some things. Soothe the wounds. This is a Samaritan touching a Jew up close and personal. Bandaging him. He's using his own resources to apply. Put the man on his own donkey, which means now he's got to walk. Saw to it that he got to the end and stayed there for a little bit to take care of him. Now, this is the real kicker. The commitment that this man made to the ongoing care of this Jewish man is, to me, the most remarkable thing. Because some of us, we're good with just one burst of help. Shovel that driveway. My neighbor, I'm good for the next two years. Well, why'd you shovel the driveway? Well, because he's an old man. He can't do it himself. Well, why why doesn't that make him a candidate for you to do it every time? Now, I'm not trying to volunteer anybody here for shoveling their neighbor's walk, but I'm just talking about the scope of this is much wider than some of us are willing to look at it. The commitment that God is calling us to make in the spirit of kingdom neighborliness oftentimes has a longer shelf life than we're willing to assign to it. And so the challenging part of this is that neighborliness, if you want to do it right, will cause you often to stay longer than you meant to stay. To spend longer than you spent more money than you meant to spend, to stick your neck out longer than you meant to stick it out, and oftentimes when the you know there's so few good neighbors in the world, when people find out that there's one on the block, <laughs> just you're gonna be you know being a lot more you know neighborly to a lot more folks. What am I discovering? What do you discover as you walk in this? I'm talking about in real, meaningful, natural ways. What do you discover? That this is such a good witness to the gospel, more than you showing up and inviting somebody to church, more than you, like, you know, you know posting the sermon podcast, hey, listen to this, this was a great talk. The, 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 the benefit of your Christian witness Witness of the gospel when people see folks just like living this out in real practical ways, no strings attached. I I couldn't preach a better sermon than great neighborliness can preach. I can't bear a better witness to the gospel and the reality of the inbreaking of the kingdom when people behold in, in, a, in a world of selfishness and cynicism and me-centeredness, when somebody consistently like rises above that, there is no greater witness to the gospel. And so don't hear your preacher trying to coax you into being some do-gooder or somebody who takes pride in scoring brownie points. This is not that at all. This is the outworking of Christ's love that has transformed us, rewired our guts so that we cannot help but see and respond to needs. This is what that is. This is what that is. So don't speak of compassion if you are not moved by it. Don't talk about it unless there's some verbs that follow that thing. It moved him toward the victim. And his neighborliness made all the difference. I would go as far as to say it saved his life. And my question to you, friends, is, is who's got moving you toward? Who's got moving you toward? Who's in trouble around you? Who needs a cup of sugar? Right, and that cup of sugar can actually mean a cup of sugar or it could be figurative for something like who, who needs your ear and who needs your attention you know just as an aside I was struck by how eager um, our senior citizens were to, to talk to somebody you know I was kind of on mission I was the dispatcher this week I'm trying to get off the phone and set things up these people were in no hurry <laughs> and I thought Man, this person seems like they don't talk to somebody very often they're just finding other things to talk about yes yes ma'am yes ma'am yeah that's funny <laughs> yeah that's funny and I just decided at certain points I decided like, listen the same when you go out to the house it's just I got the bl- I got the blower running you know like so at some point I just turn the blower off I'm wasting gas here This is gonna be a while because what it meant for me in that moment to be a good neighbor, I mean the snow shoveling is cool, but like I think that I talked to them for fifteen minutes, like that was the that was the thing, right? And so I think the spirit of the living God is so on this neighborliness thing that as sure as the spirit of God will lead you draw you away from sin and draw you into righteousness and all the thing that the Spirit does, I believe that the Spirit can give you. Wisdom and can quicken you in moments where He says, "You know what? You need to just settle down and be a neighbor here." And this spirit of God component is super is super important because when I talk about taking risk and stepping out of comfort, there are some uh, uh, some situations where that's just unwise. It's foolish. It's harmful. But if the spirit of God like is is like really with us, is really with us then I have learned to like trust the spirit to say, you know what, that's a trap. You know what, you, will, you won't be helping that person by giving them money. This is not a, this is not a good use of your time. You, you put your family at risk in this situation and I'm not in that. Like the spirit of God can like walk with you and work with you on that because like that's part of the deal, right? And so in the same way, the spirit of God, if you're interruptible, If you have your heart tuned to heaven's frequency, you can learn through the Spirit of God to say, no, 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 no. I know you came in here to get a few tomatoes and this. You're headed to the Connect lunch, but this is me right now. You stop and listen. I got a bunch of snow examples this week. So one lady called, and she was telling me how she needed to be on the list, and she's thinking, and she says, listen, I just had a terrible week. Uh, You know, I... My son is in the hospital. He's got to have this really dicey procedure and this, that, and the other. And I'm, again, I'm trying to get on and off. And just before, I just said, you know what? Can I pray for you? Like, can I pray for you right now? Can I pray for your son? What's your son's name? She told me her son's name. And I just said a prayer. And I thought it was a quick prayer, but she gave me the amen sooner than I was wanting to give the amen, which suggested like, okay, prayer's over. <laughs> Do you know that woman called me back and said that her, hus- that her son didn't need the procedure, and that he was able to come home. Now, I don't know what happened with that, but I was just struck by, that's the only person I prayed for. Out of the dozens and dozens of calls that we got this week, that's the only person that I prayed for on the phone. And she called me back to tell me, she said it like, she wasn't marveling, she said it almost in passing. I guess that prayer kind of worked. I mean, lady, the prayer that you rushed me through, like, who knows what you would have got if you let me finish. That'd be a lesson to you, lady. Don't be rude, okay? No. My point is, the Spirit of God. <laughs> no, you're right. That was. I hope she's not listening. Um, the Spirit of God said, "Pause, pray, right?" And so, are you interruptible? Who's in trouble? Who needs help? Who's been stepped over by other folks? Whose poor example have you followed and with clear conscience, you know, stepped over some people because, like, people you respect did it? I'm talking about the priest and I'm talking about the worship leader. Like, who, like, who's in help? Who needs help? Who's in trouble? So the big picture here, worship team, you can come up. Jesus sums this all up for this smart, alike expert in verse 36. Now, which one of these three men would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus says, Yes, now go and do the same. And it struck me as I was uh, looking at this passage and I was looking at a commentary by one of my favorite. Bible commentators, uh, Warren Wiersbe, and Warren Wiersbe says, basically in a nutshell, he says that the, 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 the thing that made the difference was the outlook of each of these men. The outlook of each of these men. Wiersbe says this, To the thieves, the traveling Jew was a victim to exploit, so they attacked him. To the priest and the Levite, he was a nuisance to avoid, so they ignored him. But to the Samaritan, he was a neighbor to love and help, so he took care of him. Every single person that we encounter, you know, how we relate to them, how much honor and respect we show them, how much aid and help we give them will boil down to one thing and one thing only, how we view them, our outlook on them. And if Jesus only gets to tweak One thing about his people is these things. Common prayer of mine is, God, give me your eyes. Father, give me eyes to see what you're doing around me. Give me eyes to see the hidden things. Give me eyes to see the things that I would miss apart from your spirit. Um, Nearly all those things relate to people That God has put along my path that are waiting for me to show up and to be a good neighbor. Now, that's got to be true in the confines of this building, right? We're a community of neighbors, we're a healing place. But as sure as we talked about it last week, when we leave this place and we go to our separate corners, when we go to work and we go to school and we're in the marketplace, we take the same kingdom with us and we're having neighbor moments. Outside of our neighborhood, we're having neighborly, we're being great neighbors as a witness to the gospel. Like, like who's with me on that? One of the sisters said to me last week uh, after the message, she said, Gino, she said, you know, you talk about this being a healing place. She said, I just feel like they're coming. I said, who's coming? They're coming, hurting people. By the hundreds, they're going to be coming. I think uh, she didn't say the Spirit of God told her that, but I just felt like that was a word for Like, they're coming. One of our prophetic voices here said several weeks ago at one of our leaders meetings, he felt like the Lord said, hey, we build it, they will come. And that's what we're counting on, right? But I just got to tune my heart to like, Lord, it'd be real nice if you send me people who aren't a problem real nice if you send us people with deep pockets who can like sew into this rather than like take out of it. Lord, send us people who are reasonably well, well adjusted. Like, like that's, that's my, we don't need much drama, right? But I don't think that's who God called us to be. Now, hopefully everybody who's not, he's sending us doesn't come in here on a gurney. Like hopefully he sends us some doctors, right? But if this is going to be a healing place, if we're going to be neighborly in the sense that we respond to need and we take risk and we're moved with compassion, guess what? There are going to be a lot of people we are going to, have to scrape up off the side of the road, put on our own donkey, and bring to this healing place. And I feel like the Lord says, if we will commit to do that, he can give us a building. <laughs> he, can, he can make our dreams a reality. But this is us, community, our neighbors. And I hope we can walk that out. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for, for setting before us an example of what this looks like. Jesus, you took so many risks. You, you were an expert at responding to needs. You've laid it out for us. You've given us the blueprint. And so, Father, help us walk in that. God, give us eyes. Give us an outlook that would move us toward the needy, would move us toward those who need us to take risks, that we might be moved with kingdom compassion so that we might be the healers that you've called us to be. And so, Father, would you forgive us for the people we've looked over? Would you forgive us, Father, for uh, valuing comfort over obedience? Would you move us to action? in a way that will cause you to be pleased with us. God, make us a community of great neighbors by your spirit. And in your son's name we pray. All God's people said, amen.